0: All right. Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. I believe this is episode 51. We are currently on and we are reading Chapter 6 of Citizens, Cops and Power, Recognizing the Limits of Community by Steve Herbert. The Unbearable Lightness of Community. It is understandable that two leading police scholars would argue that community policing, quote, is the most important development in policing in the past quarter century, end quote. No self-respecting police department in the United States and now much of the world does not have a program that can plausibly be placed under the community policing umbrella. Today, there is little talk of the professional model, little talk of competing models for organizing police departments. Community policing is the preferred ideal. And why not? Given the desired ends of community policing, more cohesive and politically competent urban neighborhoods, Cluster ties between residents and officers, more creative police problem solving. How could one object to his hegemony as a model for police organizations? Why not a more capable and engaged citizenry? Why not a more responsive and effective police force? <clears throat> Excuse me. In preceding chapters, I have addressed these and related questions. I pursued two broad goals. One was to the de, de- the normative assumptions about community and about the community police relation that underlie legitimations of community policing. I sought to expose and contrast the architecture of differing normative visions of community and of the state society relation. I both stressed the force of such visions and demonstrated that no single one of them commands absolute allegiance. Such normative competition is inescapable. Any broad evaluation of community policing must acknowledge this competition and the unavoidable political tensions it generates. But normative theorizing is insufficient to the task of evaluating community policing fully. My second goal was empirical assessment. I engaged two groups of actors, urban citizens and urban police officers, because they are the people meant to create community policing. One can isolate and counterpose normative visions but such an abstract exercise fails to assess the tractability of any such vision and daily experience to determine whether the ideals of community policing can be achieved involves collecting and analyzing the qualitative data I relied upon here. My analysis teaches many lessons in chapter one. For instance, I showed that the dominant ideologies of community that captivate normative theorists do not, in fact, have much relevance for urban residents. Certainly, the, quote, thick, end quote, visions of communal togetherness that communitarians advocate, either through the recovery of shared values or through the discovery of political possibility, do not resonate deeply for citizens. Yet people want something more than a fleeting, thin connection. Instead, they want relations of basic familiarity upon which they can build a sense of security in place. They want to live in a neighborhood of known others whose actions they can predict and on whom they can rely. The hegemony of this vision of neighborhood connection has implications for our expectations of community political action. If theorists of community, excuse me, if theorists of community politics anchor their prescriptions on the necessity of desirability of close neighborly connections, they will encounter only frustration. Community cannot bear the weight of such expectations. But perhaps the establishment of relations that breed security is a sufficient basis for the communal political work that community policing envisions. In chapter two, I explored that possibility. I showed that the residents were quite pessimistic that this could transpire. They consistently cited numerous obstacles that impede their neighborhood's ability to coalesce and to advocate. Activists especially, but others as well, noted several factors that prevented the realization of communal political agency. Importantly, the significance of these obstacles varies unevenly with geography, such that economically disadvantaged communities face larger hurdles to political efficacy than do advantaged ones. Taken together, the analyses of chapters one and two suggest the need to question endorsements of community policing that presume that neighborhoods can and will enact an efficacious and representative politics. excuse me further even if communities could organize effectively they would still need to encounter a state receptive to their suggestions any assessment of community policing thus must determine whether the police as one symbolically significant arm of the state demonstrates such receptivity in chapter three i explain how the democratic aspiration for a state that is responsive to its citizenry is not the only legitimate standard for the state society relation not the only desirable articulation of the police community connection. Instead, states might sometimes be best understood as importantly separate from the citizenry through adherence to either an abstract legal code or a set of professional norms. Also, the state can accurately be described as generative of society because of its policies, its bureaucratic routines and its moralized discourses. I use the ethnographic data to demonstrate that all three modes of state society relation inform the police's approach to the communities they serve in both theory and practice. These modes are intention. This reality complicates any blithe endorsement of community policing that presumes a police force that is largely responsible, excuse me, responsive to communal politicking. Although all three modes are significant to police practice, the narrative of separation has unusual power. In chapter four, I explain how the police reinforces self-construction as authoritative, authoritative crime fighters whose autonomy and discretionary authority deserve respect. Powerful impulses in the culture create a wariness of citizen oversight and an endorsement of officer independence. These realities should also cause us to reconsider any high expectations we might have for community policing. Officers continue to resist the suggestions that they make themselves especially subservient to community input. This helps explain much resident frustration with the police, a phenomenon I explored in depth in Chapter 5. I showed that the three modes of state society relation all possess legitimacy in the eyes of the citizenry. This suggests that possible tensions between these modes irrevocably complicate the politics of police community relations. Yet residents do appear to recognize the comparative power of the narrative of separation and they express dissatisfaction with it. They also sometimes chaff at the routines the police use for both apprehending their input and morally constructing their neighborhoods. The frequency of these complaints suggests that much work must be done before police community relations can improve significantly. In short, community is unbearably light. It cannot bear the political weight of projects like community policing Its voice is not loudly heard by state agencies like the police. In this chapter, I explore the implications of this conclusion by addressing four sets of questions. The first concerns whether the hegemony of community policing deserves to persist. To conclude that community is unbearably light is is to suggest that it is time to reassess our expectations of community police relations. To reconsider the status of community policing as a model. The second focuses on the broader role of the state and community. As agents of coercive force, the police should not be a prominent player in building building community. If the state wishes to help create effective communal organizations, then it must avoid over-reliance on the police to help accomplish this. Of course, there is no simple pathway for more legitimate state-society relations. My third set of questions revolves around the tensions that ensue from the normative competition between subservience separation, and generativity. The attractability of these tensions means that they deserve our continuing attention, not because any easy resolution is possible, but because normative choices simply must be made. They are best made consciously and with full awareness of the consequences that inevitably attend any such choice. My final set of questions concerns what role, if any, community should play in urban politics. Because community as an ideal will not disappear, it is senseless to discard it as a potential vehicle through which localized politics can emerge. Yet skepticism about its utility must be ever-present. Its political lightness must never escape our attention. Okay, that brings us to about 10-minute mark here. And that also brings us to a a, a changing in themes in this chapter here. Uh, pardon me, I'm just looking through to see. Actually, I think we probably have to go through two episodes to get through this chapter thought maybe we could do it in one Uh, okay so this that first the first passage that we just read through was really just a review of the previous five chapters of the book and i i'm thankful for that review i think that the the still to this point to this point in the book the thing that i've taken the most away from is the Uh, complexities of the concepts of community both uh, the complexities of them in theory and then the complexities of them, uh, the complexities of the concept of community in theory and also the complexities of the concept of community uh, in practice and how different uh, people community means different things to different people and how uh, one of the things that has been pointed out the most is that the Hindrances that certain communities have when it comes to uh, their relationships with the police, when it comes to the legitimacy that they view the police in, when it comes to being able to deal with uh, root issues or root causes of crime that is taking place in neighborhoods, a lot of those things come down to the economic position that these neighborhoods are in it comes down to the econ- uh the financial positions that these neighborhoods are in it comes down to the uh the uh, class status of the people within that neighborhood and and also i think that that does uh also i think the differentiating between uh neighborhood and community and locale and community and how sometimes uh, a neighborhood can be uh what somebody's talking about their community they can be talking about their neighborhood uh but also there can be times where somebody's talking about community and they're talking about uh the race of people that they're from or they're talking about uh people that work a similar job that they have or people who have gone through a similar uh personal experience that they have went through and and uh and so i think that uh one of the things that's important about uh these specific issues we're talking about is being able to converse with people and be working with the same definitions or the same understandings of concepts. And so I think that my understanding of the concept of community has uh, greatly evolved from reading through this. And I don't think that I would just arbitrarily use that word without taking the time to figure out uh, what it means in the context of the conversation and what it may mean to the person I'm having the conversation with. Uh, I think another one of the things that has stood out to me about all of these uh, the previous five chapters is the the hindrances to the legitimacy of policing uh, when it comes to the neighborhood that you're from or the community that you're in or the experiences that you personally have. And I think that uh, that's something that uh, we have to have more conversations about is how uh, for certain people who have who who are who the institution of policing views to be more likely to be, quote-unquote, the victim as opposed to somebody that they view to be more likely, quote-unquote, the, the criminal, that has a lot to do with your the legitimacy in which you view the police in, uh, the neighborhood or the communities that you're from, uh, ex- personal experiences that you've had. All of these things have a lot to do with the legitimacy that you view the police in. Uh, I think another one of the things that stood out here is some of the manner mannerism some of the thought patterns and ideologies of police when it comes to their interactions with citizens has been at the forefront and and i think all of those things are are pieces of a puzzle that need to be put together for us to be able to accurately uh move forward with uh with altering some of these uh institutional uh issues okay let's move on to the next portion <clears throat> On the Status of Community Policing Skogan and Roth accurately described the rapture that surrounds community policing. Its popularity allowed it to overthrow the professional model as the organizational ideal, and it affected much popular and political discourse about the proper role of police departments. Yet mine is not the first analysis to suggest that the reality of community policing does not match its rhetoric. Police officers continue to resist it with appreciable tenacity. Many departments appear to adopt community policing programs not because of a strong internally held belief in its utility, but primarily to maintain their legitimacy, particularly in the eyes of outing of outside funding agencies like the federal government. Even where community policing does exist to a noticeable extent, it is typically confined to a single, often isolated unit within the department, rather than diffused throughout the organization as a culture changing reform. In addition, the police's community engagement is often largely confined to working with advantaged neighborhoods whose perspectives on crime and policing are congruent with those of the officers. More marginalized groups rarely get a word in edgewise. Indeed, we do not possess much evidence that the police community relation has changed much as a consequence of community policing. Take for example, the case of Chicago whose municipal government undertook what is arguably the most ambitious effort yet to implement community policing. Chicago's city government spearheaded an impressively concerted effort at a thoroughgoing reform. This included making numerous city government agencies responsive to community concerns about a range of issues connected to crime and disorder. It also included a robust effort to advertise and convene regular police community forums. In their analysis of these forums, Wesley Skogan and his associates found that awareness of community policing in Chicago increased measurably and that about 28 percent of Chicagoans who were aware of police community forums had attended at least one. Yet the number of attendees did not increase much during the late 1990s, and it consisted mostly of people who showed up regularly. More importantly, Observations of these meetings noted a continuing difficulty in establishing interactions in which both sides participated actively to create strategies to solve problems and to establish means to evaluate those strategies. Skogan concluded that these forms have not, quote, become a general vehicle for the kind of systematic problem solving that the department envisions, end quote. Similarly, Roth's extensive evaluation of community policing programs in the United States leads him to argue that, quote, true community partnerships involving sharing power and decision making are rare at this time, End quote. But why should we expect anything different? Why did we ever believe that communities could be more capable of articulating a political voice? Why did we ever believe that the police would be especially responsive? In retrospect, these assumptions seem naive. They may even be dangerous. To hold on to the hope that these dynamics will change is politically untenable. Such hope, however, well-intentioned, can lead us astray. For instance, its perpetuation may cause us to neglect the significant challenges that face neighborhoods of economic disadvantage. As Ralph Taylor persuasively argues, broader factors, the cost of housing, the availability of jobs, the state of various social services, all deeply impact the everyday reality of urban neighborhoods far more than the factors of, quote, disorder, end quote. And none of these broader factors are in any way touchable by the police. Further, as Eric Klinberg notes, efforts to foreground policing in an urban. Efforts to foreground policing in urban politics necessarily means that fear of crime receives significant attention. This can mean that discussions about how to improve broader measures of social welfare get sidetracked. It can also increase levels of distrust and suspicion within the urban citizenry as the fearful seek protection from the fear inducing. In Clintonberg's strong words, quote, as a program for civic renewal, community policing represents democracy in its most desperate and depraved form, end quote. Indeed, if community regeneration is a priority, why foreground the police in any such effort? As agents of coercive force, the police do not make especially good community builders. As I explained in Chapter 4, this coercive capacity deeply shapes police culture in ways that reinforce officers' sense of separation from community. They are the authoritative crime fighters. Further, their dominant narrative for crime causation, as a result of ill-minded bad apples, means that officers rarely pay attention to wider community dynamics and may in fact exasperate divisions within communities. Police officers may be able to make urban residents feel safer, as when they patrol more visibly on foot, but this hardly translates into any competence in restoring the deeper fabric of community life. Indeed, given the police's standoffishness toward community politics, it seems positively counterproductive to expect neighborhood political regeneration through community policing. This misplaced faith in community policing may help reduce police accountability. To presume that police community forums will work to ensure citizen oversight of the police is a mistake. The evidence suggests otherwise. A more productive strategy would be a more productive strategy would be to bolster formal mechanisms of civilian oversight, such as civilian review boards. These may be a more effective means to ensure that officers are held accountable to community expectations as expressed through formal prescriptions on police behavior. The police successfully resist the idea that community forums are places where they can be called to task. Accountability must be pursued through alternate means. In short, it is better to constrict, not expand, the role of the police in any project aimed at community regeneration. The police's coercive role means that they are not good community builders, and thus we fool ourselves and harm communities by holding on to the more elaborate rhetoric of community policing. As much as citizens themselves desire a friendly relation with the cop on the beat, this should not obscure the impressive array of coercive tools that officers carry and that so fundamentally structure their culture and job orientation. These coercive mechanisms are deeply implicated in other developments that occurred concurrently with the ascent of community policing, including, most notably, the growth of paramilitary policing and the rising popularity of broken windows policing. Neither of which exemplifies a friendly police force. Indeed, the area of community policing has seen a robust reinforcement of the, quote, get tough, end quote, rhetoric of crime control and the concoctment policy changements changes that make the United States the world leader in incarceration. <clears throat> Further, These punitive practices reinforce the discrepancies between urban neighborhoods because they impact poor minority dominated neighborhoods most significantly. Residents of such neighborhoods are more likely to be incarcerated and thereby to suffer the long term consequences of the stigma of conviction. Both steady employment and family stability, becoming more elusive with the history of incarceration. This reality merely increases the level of distress facing urban neighborhoods of disadvantage. This, quote, get tough, end quote, orientation obviously has much resonance within the culture of the police, which helps explain officers' inability to work productively in creating equitable partnerships with community groups. The professional model lives on, quietly flourishing beneath the reform rhetoric of community policing. As coercive agents, the police do have a role to play. They remain a vital means of resolving immediate crises, of promoting a sense of safety, of responding to specific instances of criminality. They can even competently work to prevent crime, though such efforts have historically been inconsistent. But to entrust them with such responsibilities hardly means that we should expect anything more, that we should hope for them to be rendered easily subservient to community oversight. As Berkeley long ago recognized, quote, the phrase Democratic police force, is a contradiction in terms, end quote. In short, perhaps it is time to abandon community policing to give up the ghost of a chance of its ever representing a project for meaningful police reform. Its promise remains unrealized, largely because it was never realizable. This does not mean that police departments should discontinue efforts to forge productive working relations with community groups. What Loder and Mullicky note for England holds true for the United States That the large reservoir of public support for the police provides a solid basis upon which constructive police community relations can be built. But such constructive relations are frustrated when the police act as if isolated programs constitute reform or as if they presently engage in meaningful power sharing with community groups. Given the limits to what the police can accomplish, they should withdraw from a prominent place in efforts to revive urban neighborhoods, a role that more properly belongs to other agencies of the state. And then that brings us to a changing of the theme of the chapter there. And then uh, I think we might we got we're gonna knock, we'll knock out one more passage and then we'll end this episode. I think the main thing that stands out to me from the paragraphs that we just read through is the. Mm-hmm. Sorry about that. Is the emphasis that Steve Herbert put on the fact that his conclusion and what is evident throughout the uh, readings of this piece of literature is that too many things are being relied upon to be done by the police. Uh, And I think that one of the reasons that happens is because of the amount of money that has been given to the police. And these are things that have happened politically through decades that this has been a, a way to. You give right, give raises to police officers. Uh, they spoke about the paramilitary equipment that, uh, the this concept of the warrior cop that has begun to heavily happen in the 21st century. A lot of these things can be traced back to the uh, 1992 or the 1993, the 90s Crime Bill that Bill Clinton put into, uh, put into play, which increased heavily the amount of money and the amount of. Paramilitary equipment that uh, local police forces had and all of these things have went to uh, create a philosophy uh, and within the institution of policing that is about uh, crime fighting that is about violence fight uh, about violence work. And and as he pointed out here that throughout history, excuse me, throughout history, increasing of police or increasing of police funding has been inconsistent with the decreasing of crime or the decreasing of uh, criminal activity in areas and in places. And so uh, I think that within reading this, this uh, to me is another piece of literature that opens up Uh, Or that should awaken people to the importance of creating different organizations, of creating different institutions, of of finding ways to divest funds from the institution of policing and putting them into other uh, institutions that are not trying to deal with the effects and that are instead trying to deal with the causes Uh, because of the fact that. Policing is what policing is. You are not going to be able to uh, change the violence that is inherent in policing, the coerciveness that is inherent in policing, the uh, corruption that is inherent in policing, the disadvantage, the discrimination, the prejudicial uh, thought patterns that are all uh uh, prevalent in policing, but what we can do is create uh, new institutions and new avenues that don't have those uh, built-in prejudices and philosophies that can be more humane and that cannot be focused on trying to use violence uh, to curb violence or trying to use inhumanity uh, to curb uh, inhumanity. Let me see. I'm trying to see. what Oh, you know, we might not even be able to. Uh, yeah let's read through this passage we got time to read through this the state and community the expected role of the police highlights a paradox they are a state agency expected to reduce crime and to rebuild community yet these goals are rendered well nigh unattainable by other components of the state the police are not capable of altering the social dynamics that most affect urban neighborhoods these dynamics however are implicated in policies enacted by the state indeed Robert Sampson and Janet Lawrenson show that federal policies from urban renewal to public housing may have done more to cause inner city violence than to prevent it. At other levels of government as well, policies controlling zoning, housing, economic development strategies and education strongly shape the realities that confront urban communities. It is hardly the police's fault that they cannot do much to stem the ill effects of the concentrated disadvantage these policies enable. Even if greater competence in police problem-solving operations is possible, it would be but a puny bulwark against the overwhelming challenges generated by broader forces. The work of the police, in effect, represents an attempt by one component of the state apparatus to minimize the negative effects generated by other components. This reality helps underwrite a necessary skepticism about the possibilities of community policing and mandates a shift of our attention toward those state activities that more directly bear on urban neighborhoods. It is unrealistic to expect the police to undo the catastrophic consequences of state policies that help generate urban landscapes of widely varying economic and political possibility. To create and reiterate such expectations for the police leads to an unjustifiable neglect of the role of other arms of the state and rendering those expectations impossible to meet. Recall the words of Marshall, the pastor in Centralia quoted in the last chapter. Marshall, I mean, hey, the police keep me safe at night. I appreciate them for doing that. If they want to focus on that and cleaning up the streets, I say you concentrate on that and let us and other agencies or whatever Or have the police come alongside churches that can help change the community. But you put police in charge of changing the community as well as policing the community. They are going to fail in both areas. This is a point very well taken. The police cannot change the underlying conditions that shape urban neighborhoods in any substantive fashion. Whatever culpability the state possesses for the health of the community. Largely lies outside the police's rightful charge. Let us absolve the police of unjustified responsibilities and hold the state accountable for those of its policies most directly connected to the realities that urban neighborhoods confront daily. Let us also hold the state accountable for its responsibility in generating the means by which citizen agency can be expressed and reinforced. The insight that the state largely generates the community with which it interacts requires us to assess just how this transpires. The state and civil society, in other words, are not strictly separate and opposing entities, but importantly connected by the opportunities the state constructs for citizen activity and involvement. Through various means, wars, schools, political parties, states have historically created the mechanisms for citizen participation in public life. Without such state-sponsored supports, citizen action is unlikely to build. As Etherenberg summarizes it, quote, you cannot explain civil society apart from the influence of state building, end quote. Sadly, as I have demonstrated, community policing does not represent an instance of the state's nurturing of civil society. Yet this failure should not spell the end of the search for alternate means by which this can transpire. Because the police are hobbled by their coercive power from being supports for a, res- a revived civic politic, the state must find other means to accomplish this. Uh, and that gets us to exactly 30 minutes and that gets us to a uh, stopping point. And so the next episode will be our last episode. We got about four or five pages left here. Uh, I think that one of the things, was something here. Okay, and I think the thing that stands out to me the most from this passage is just the highlighting of the role of the state outside of just the police of creating some of these circumstances in neighborhoods and in, commu- in, in different communities. And I think that that is also one of the things that we have to put at the uh, utmost importance of our education and of our informing ourselves about these issues is that just as important as it is for us to learn about. And I think I sort of spoke about this on uh, a couple episodes back. But just as important as it is for us to learn about policing and the education of policing, we must also understand that the police are a piece of a bigger picture. Uh, and there's no way to uh, be able to view that picture as a whole without first being able to uh, view the the view how police fit in in that picture and get a full uh, scope and perception of police. But then you must uh, spread that out to uh, politicians that are in office. Then you must spread that out to the uh, uh, judicial system as a whole. You must spread it out to uh, the government as a whole and, and, and and to capitalism and uh, all of these other things, you know? And so, uh, I think that and that's why we emphasize here at the May 30th Alliance police terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice because of all the things that is, are inca- encapsulated into there. And so uh, I'm happy that he did the job of pointing out the role that politicians play, the role that government ag- other government agencies play in creating excuse me, these uh, conditions in, in communities. And on that note, we will end this episode here. Please share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Be on the lookout for the next episode of Rockford Reading Daily, where we will finish up Reading Citizens, Cops, and Power by Steve Herbert. All right. We outside.